and man, we had a great week last week. Well, it was Halloween and uh, on Friday, and what do most people celebrate on October 31st? They celebrate what? Halloween. They think of Halloween. But actually, October 31st was actually also Reformation Day. Reformation Day. Not everybody knows what that is or what that means, but you're going to find out today. Now, who comes to mind when you hear the name Martin Luther? Martin Luther King. You're like, yeah, you didn't complete it. It's Martin Luther King. I remember as my daughter grew up and, and attended over at Davidson, they would have Martin Luther Day, King Day and, and everything. And, and I mean, they'd spend the whole week talking about that. One, one year, she had to like swear allegiance to Martin Luther. I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, Martin Luther King. And so every, uh, and I'm sure Martin Luther King did a lot of good things, and he did, um, for race relations. But the, uh, the man that he's named after is even more important because of his grace relations. And so race is one thing, but grace is a greater thing. And so one thing that I always wanted to encourage Amber to do was to understand who Martin Luther King was named after, the original Martin Luther. And so Martin Luther King Day was always an opportunity in our house to talk about the original Luther. And so I hope that after this lesson, this week and next week, that uh, October 31st wouldn't just be Halloween, it would be a celebration of Reformation Day for you. And Martin Luther King Jr. would be an opportunity to actually remember the grace relations of Martin Luther. And so let's look at that. What is Reformation Day? What is that? Well, it's the Halloween that really changed the world. Because on October 31st, in the year 1517, nearly 500 years ago, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther ushered in a day in the history of the church, in church history and the kingdom of God that forever changed both church history and the kingdom of God. And I, there's probably no person that I enjoy teaching about more in church history than Martin Luther. Well, what's the Reformation? If it's called Reformation Day, what's the Reformation? Let me give you the definition the question that dominated the Reformation, and the motivation for it. If you can learn these three things, you'll, you're basically an expert on the Reformation. Don't worry about all the other dates, all the details. And by the way, when we talk about you know, history, you're like, oh my goodness, history. And when you talk about church history, you're like, oh, that's even scarier. Uh, and it's dates and everything. Well, I hope that uh, I will change your view of, of church history and learning it. Because uh, it's far more than dates and names, it's actually the mission of God. In fact, history is his story. And you're going to see his story, God's story, in the life of Martin Luther. So what's the Reformation? Let's, let me give you a simple definition. It, it was a religious movement that lasted from 1517 to 1545 that God used to bring light, the light of the gospel to the Dark Ages. That time before... Uh, the 1400s, the 1300s, even back to the 1200s were the medieval times, and they were often called the Dark Ages. And that's and, and truly, spiritually, they were because the light of the gospel had all gone, all but gone out, and the word of God was shut and literally chained to pulpits to where only you could only have access to it if you went to the church and read this huge Bible. The only problem was you couldn't read. It was the Dark Ages. On top of that, it was in Latin, and you couldn't read Latin, and only the educated, and even many of the priests themselves could not uh, speak Latin. In fact, they would me memorize the Mass in Latin just enough to be able to say it. They never did really, so they even know what they were saying when they were saying Mass. In fact, we're going to see in a moment that uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes that at the moment of celebrating uh, the Mass and taking the bread from the Lord's Supper and declaring this is the bread, it would become literally the body of Christ. And they would say this in Latin, and it would sound like hocus-pocus. That's where hocus-pocus comes from, a, a magical phrase that would perform a magical feat of turning ordinary bread into the body of Christ. But I get ahead of myself. Uh, it, it's a religious movement that God used to bring the light of the gospel to the Dark Ages. It was an attempt to bring the Roman Catholic Church back in line with the New Testament. That's why it's called Church, bring it back in line with the New Testament. But instead, it resulted in the formation of Protestant state churches. 
the Anglicans, or here in America they became known as Episcopalians or Presbyterians. And so they were Protestant because they protested the fact that the Roman Catholic Church would not reform itself and bring itself more in line with the New Testament church found in the Bible. And uh, and the resulting churches that came out of this, these Protestant or protesting churches, were indeed more biblical than the Roman Catholic Church. The only problem was reform enough, and they kept many of the uh, teachings and many uh, influences of the Roman Catholic Church and their r- rituals, and therefore they, they, they came out, but they didn't come out far enough. We'll talk more maybe about that in a little bit. The 1517 uh, date marks the year that Luther posted his 95 debating points. They're called theses, which is just an academic term for uh, statements of truth that I want to debate or points I want to debate. And that's called Reformation Day. That happened on October 31st, 1517, and that is what launched the Reformation. I'll show you why today and next week. The 1545 date marks the year that the Roman Catholics pushed back and said, no more protesting and no more talk of reform, and they issued a counter-reformation, and no more countries, except for Holland, uh, became Protestant after uh, 1545. So there's your dates, 1517, 1545. Now that's the definition. God used a religious movement to bring light of the gospel to dark ages. But here's the question. Here's the question that dominated the Reformation. And if I already lost you a little bit with dates and times, you can understand this. The question was this. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And there is the reason why studying the Reformation in the life of Martin Luther is important for you and I right now. Because you, perhaps even here this morning, are asking the question... What must I do to be saved? And if you're not asking it now, then I know and I hope that you asked it at one point in your life. At some point in your life, if you're born again this morning, you asked the question, or it was asked to you, what must you do to be saved? And all of us here, whether no matter where we live, no matter where we work, whether we're in Wichita like Larry or in Kansas City here or what economic status, we surround, we are surrounded by and we work with people that are asking the question whether they realize it or not. I was asking it for 17 years. I didn't phrase it that way. I didn't really understand what I was asking, but that's what I was asking. What must I do to have a relationship with God in a personal way? Well, here's the motivation. So that's the definition, the question. Here's the motivation. A monk by the name of Martin Luther, who lived from 1483 to 1546, to whom God graciously revealed his answer to that question. You see, Martin Luther, we're going to see this morning, was asking this question. What must I do to be saved? And God graciously revealed his answer to that question. And in revealing God's answer, not man's answer, not the Roman Catholic Church's answer, not a Reformed Church's answer, not a Protestant Church's answer, not a Baptist Church, an Anabaptist, it doesn't matter. It's not man's answer, but God's answer. That was the motivation. In, in, in a sense, you could say, the Reformation was a result of one man's conversion to Jesus Christ. The motivation was the conversion of, uh, of Martin Luther, and that's what makes it exciting. Let me show you this. Uh, in 2003, uh, a terrific first-rate movie was made on Martin Luther called Simply Luther. In fact, I think I, I took some of you guys uh, with us. We went to the theater when it was shown. And I want to show you the trailer because it kind of introduces in a dramatic way the life and the impact of Martin Luther. You can get the light for me. Martin Luther... Are you the author of these writings? I am. You question the authority of the church council, sir? My conscience is captive to the word of God. I'm interested in the truth. Christianity is tearing apart. And just when we need unity most, you create confusion. My God, who is this Martin Luther? This drunken little German monk is intoxicated with himself. 
sober him. You're threatened with excommunication. But I'm a loyal son of the church. If you do not recant, you will be delivered to the Inquisition. Never, for sure. If Luther were to lift one finger, every peasant in Germany would rise up behind him. Did you recant what you've written? I cannot. And I will not. Recant. No! Luther's getting married to a runaway nun. He would the works of Martin Luther shall be erased on the memory of man. The holy war has just begun. Let somebody else be roasted like a pig. Coward! You call yourselves Christian? Jack and heretic. This will separate us from Rome forever. Cool, pretty cool, and some uh, top top name uh, actors in that as well. And so uh, I'd encourage you. You can find that all over uh, on the internet. You can buy it digitally and uh, the DVD, and very good. Well, let's look at it. Uh, we're going to break down Martin Luther's life uh, and basically sum up his life coming to Christ in this way: a monk in search of salvation at the end of the Dark Ages, a monk in search of salvation. And we can divide his life before Christ, because all of us have a testimony of before Christ, how we came to Christ, and then after Christ. And so what we're going to look at this morning is the testimony, the personal testimony of Martin Luther, how his life was before Christ, and then how he came to Christ. And then next week we'll look at what his life, how his life changed after Christ, and why that uh, that should matter to us. And so the first part of his life was he was a successful uh, law student who encountered death. Uh, now in the mid, mid in the Middle Ages, in the medieval times, encountering death was a daily experience. Uh, you did not live long and life was hard. And we're going to see that he was a successful law student who had actually two personal encounters closely coming to death. And here's what happens when you come close to death. You ask this question, where will I go when I die? Where will I go when I die? And by the way, that's not a bad question to ask the living as well. Because some are in a living death and are are contemplating and considering where will I go when I die? Well, that kind of sums up what we're going to see here in the first part of his life. Look in your notes there. You can see that he was born on November 10th, 1483, to peasant parents in the little town of Eisleben, which is about 120 miles north southwest of Berlin. So just, just outside of Berlin in the northern part of Germany. Martin Luther himself said, I'm the son of a peasant and the grandson and the great-grandson. Luther came from very simple means. Luther was a common man. Luther reminds us that you don't have to be a, a highly, you know, he was intelligent, but you don't have to come from great uh, lineage and, and, and have a high place in society to make an impact for Jesus Christ. He was a simple man. His dad was a coal miner. So he wasn't a coal miner's daughter, but a coal miner's son. He re- was raised in a religious home that was both strict and very stup- superstitious, which was very typical of the Middle Ages. Remember, it was the Dark Ages. The Bible was closed. The light of the gospel had been all but put out. Not completely. God always has a remnant. But it was the Dark Ages. And so you, you were, they were very strict. They were very disciplined. But they were very superstitious. Death hung like a, a phantom or a specter over their lives. And life was hard. And his parents were hard on him. Um, in fact, because his dad was a coal miner, they would often pray to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of coal miners. So as you go down into the pits and would dig, they would uh, often be praying to St. Anne for the protection of their dad. Um, as a child, Luther was influenced by the religion of the day, which at that day was predominantly the Roman Catholic Church, in which one had to work for future salvation just as hard as one had to work for physical survival. So life was hard, and you had to work hard to live physically, and you had to work even harder if you ever hoped to go to heaven. 
And so that's how he grew up. He studied law because his dad wanted him to. You know, it was a typical story. Your dad worked in the coal mines. That wasn't fun. That wasn't easy. He wanted something better for his son. Uh, Luther was extremely brilliant and, and showed he had many talents and, and was a, talent, a talented man, a young man. And he, he wanted him to study law so that he would have a better life than his father did. He earned both his bachelor's and master's degrees in the shortest possible time. So this guy was sharp. Luther almost died, though, at the age of 19. And he never saw a Bible until he was 20 years old. So again, it gets the idea of the Dark Ages. So here's a guy who, as I'll tell you here in a minute, uh, almost died at the age of 19, having never even seen a Bible. Okay, Getting to zero... Every people group without the scriptures, the life of Martin Luther uh, has to do with what we've been studying and learning about this past week with our world outreach. He was coming on his way home from law, law school and a dagger that he was carrying in, on him pierced his leg and cut an artery, artery. And so he was bleeding out. And it was only because he was with a friend who ran for a doctor that his life was even saved. Uh, lying at the edge of the road until the doctor came, he cried out to the mother of Jesus, Oh, Mary, help me. Again, the dark ages. He hasn't seen a Bible. He doesn't know the gospel. He doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is fearful. You can't address God directly. You can't address the Son of God directly. But Mary, who was so holy and, and virtuous and, 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 and virginal, you could cry out to her and maybe she could help uh, appease Jesus and God the Father to save him. Oh, Mary, help. This won't be the last time that Luther cries out to the saints to save him because of his fear of death. But his near-death experience, here's what I want you to see, that at 19, he began to ask this question, where will I go when I die? And it's obvious it wasn't going to be to a good place. And he was worried about that. And so, therefore, he began to ask the question that would dominate the rest of his life, and really his entire life. And it was this question, what must I do to be saved? Look, I almost died here on this roadside. I'm going to hell. I don't have a, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to appease God. I don't know what to do with my sin. What must I do to be saved? And so now we kind of enter into the, the real meat of his life. He's about 21 years old, and we see the story of a guilt-ridden monk in search of salvation. And so this question, what must I do to be saved, is the question that dominated the Reformation. It's the question that dominated his life. And it's the question that ought to dominate your life. And it ought to be the question we ought to bring to bear on the lives of people around us. So let's take a look at the rest of his life. What must I do to be saved? Become a monk? What must I do to be saved? Well, in those times, the logical answer might be become a monk. And you say, well, I don't know anybody wanting to become a monk. Well, yeah, you do, but in a different way. Because here's how a lot of people answer the question, what must I do to be saved? I need to get spiritual by making sacrifices to set myself apart more and more to God in order to be saved. This is what people do when they get serious about the question, what must I do to be saved? And maybe... Just maybe some of you started that path as well when you began to try to answer this question. Maybe you tried to get more spiritual by making more sacrifices to get closer to God. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up a little bit earlier uh, and, and read my Bible, or I'm going uh, uh, to change my work schedule and be able to start going to church, or I'm going to sacrifice this or that in order to get closer to God. Well, here's what happened in 1505 when he was about 21, 20, 20 years old. He was nearly struck dead by lightning during a thunderstorm. And he promises to St. Anne, remember the patron saint of minors, the, the, the saint that he was most familiar with, that he would become a monk if she saves him from death. It, it was, it's a, it's a quite an amazing story because here just, what, three years after almost dying on a roadside, he almost gets struck by lightning. Okay, and it just totally freaks him out. And he begins to ask the question in a very serious way. Or he begins to try to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? 
And he was walking again back from law school. So I guess law school is kind of a dangerous thing to be walking back from. He's walking back from law school, and he was nearly struck by lightning in a thunderstorm. And here's what he cried out. Help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk. Okay? I'll become, it was, it was a uh, foxhole uh, type prayer. And, uh, and before we uh, think too, or too harsh about Martin Luther, maybe you have prayed those kind of prayers when you were in a tough spot and you said, God, I don't, I don't, I don't care, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, get me out of this. And if you get me out of this, I'll do, you fill in the blank. The only problem is what happens when God gets us out of those things. We often forget and we don't do that. But Martin Luther was serious about answering this question, what must I do to be saved? And the best thing he could think of was become a monk. And so two weeks later, he keeps his promise and he enters the Augustinian order at Erfurt. So he moves from his hometown at the age of 21. Now his father, remember, wanted his son to become a lawyer. Now, there's nothing worse than wanting your son to be a lawyer and him becoming a monk, a priest. And so, instead of seeing the uh, thunderstorm as an act of God, like Luther did, his father said, that wasn't an act of God, that was an act of the devil. Don't do this, this is a dumb move. But Luther did it because he was serious about the question. Well, the only problem is, once you become a monk, you know, you're still working hard, you still have your sins, you're still separated from God, and, and, and it didn't work. It didn't work. I'm a monk, and I'm still wondering, what must I do to be saved? Well, there's more to do, because religion is spelled D-O, do. And there's always more to do. And so what do you do when you're a monk, and you're still asking the question, what must I do to be saved? You don't settle for being a monk, you become a priest. And so in the next part of his life, he becomes a priest, and that means he gets to celebrate Mass. And that's a big deal in the Dark Ages. It's a big deal today uh, for Roman Catholics as well. So here's what you do. What's becoming a priest? Well, I don't know anybody that's going to necessarily become a priest. Well, here's what it means. It means getting more serious about being spiritual by becoming a priest. Some people become a pastor. Some people think by becoming a missionary that somehow they'll get more spiritual and be more acceptable to God. So this isn't just a Roman Catholic thing. This is something that Bible believers can get in their mind that if I really want to get spiritual, if I really want to get closer to God, then I need to go, you know, I need to become a spiritual person, a spiritual man of God. I need to become a pastor or a missionary or a priest. Well, in Martin Luther's day, the option was a priest. So in 1507, after being a monk for two years, he's ordained as a priest, and he celebrates his first Mass. But here's the deal. He becomes so terrified of the presence of Christ in the bread and the wine that he nearly drops them, and he tries to run from the altar. You see, it's a fearful thing to come face-to-face with God when you don't have a mediator. It's a fearful thing to come in the presence of a holy God when you're still in your sins. And so here he gets closer to God, and it scares the bejeebies out of it. And that's something we need to understand. The fear of God has been lost in our culture. The fear of God has been lost in our churches. We think it's no big thing to sin or to enter into God's presence. But here's the deal. By becoming a priest, he could get closer to Jesus than he had actually ever been in his life. Remember, he hasn't even... Until now, he hadn't even seen a Bible. Now he obviously has it once he became a monk. And he could actually be a mediator between Jesus and others. That's what a priest does in the Roman Catholic Church. You stand between Jesus and others who want to know Jesus, and you're the mediator. So here he is, the mediator. And you've got to understand that uh, in those days, they would only take what we call communion, what they would call mass. They only did this once a year. And even then, you could only eat of the bread. You couldn't drink of the wine because that was the literal blood of Jesus and that was just too holy for you to even partake of. So when you went to Mass, you went once a year. And in that time, they would hold up. And if you've ever been to uh, museums, Roman Catholic uh, churches, when we go on uh, mission campaigns, we'll often try to take you in. You'll see, and I've seen them in Germany and I've seen them in Latin America. Uh, and there's a special name for it, but since I'm not a Roman Catholic, I don't know what it is. But it's it's a, a gold um, 
like a candlestick, and in, inside of it, you would place the little wafer of bread, because this little wafer of bread is literally going to become the body of Christ. And if you just look upon that, you would get forgiveness of some sins. You would get temporary or or partial forgiveness. And so they put this little piece of bread in this elaborate gold uh, stance, which has an official name. And the priest holds it up. Well, you have to do that so because everybody so everybody can see it. Because if you're 20 feet, 100 feet away, you're not going to see this little piece of bread. You need to see Jesus. I mean, after all, this is Jesus' body you're now looking at. So you hold it up and it's all ornate and makes it holy and basically it's an idol. And so at the moment that the priest would say, this is my body, in Latin, which kind of sounds like hocus pocus, uh, literally, and when he says that, then that piece of bread, though it still looks like a piece of bread, literally becomes the body of Christ. And at that moment, if you look upon it, then you can get forgiveness of sins. Now, you've got to understand, in the Dark Ages, this only happens once a year. So it wouldn't be unusual for a, a person who is asking the question, what must I do to be saved? How do I get my sins forgiven? To run from one church to another to see the body of Christ, because this is only going to happen one year, and the more times I see it, the more I can be forgiven. And so they would run from church to church whenever Mass was being taken in order so that they could see this. Well, here's Luther now, who has understood this and, and practiced this and seen this all his life. Now he's the one who's holding up the bread. He is the one who in Latin is saying, this is my body, and it just totally freaked him out. So much so that he begins to shake, and he nearly spills uh, the, the, the cup. Here's what Luther says about this time. If anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was me. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt... I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. Because no matter how much you do, you still have to deal with the sin within. Does that make sense? So he's still asking. Now he's a priest. Now he got to uh, to, uh, perform Mass, and he blows it over his guilt. And he's still asking, what must I do to be saved? So if you're a Roman Catholic and you're trying to work towards your religion, and you become, you know, I mean, the next step, I guess, would become a bishop or, or uh, uh, work your way up to being pope. But he settled for number three, do more penance. 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 P-E-N-A-N-C-E. Penance. Now, remember, religion is spelled do. And so... It was kind of like renting a car from Avis. You just had to try harder and harder and harder. That's kind of lost on some of you younger ones, but that's that's never the case. We try harder. And so you say, well, what's penance mean? Or how, do, how can I relate to that? Or how can I see that in, in my life or the lives of others? It means getting more serious by being extra sorry for your sins and suffering for them more. Okay? So if... if, if, if what must I do to be saved? Well, maybe I need to just be more sorry for my sins, and maybe I need to get more serious about my sins and spend more time. I remember working with uh, uh, in the youth with the the Korean American youth down in Dallas. There was a young man by the name of Eugene who went on to to and he was just a great guy, and you knew God was going to do great things with him. But he struggled with knowing that he was forgiveness forgiven, and he was so conscientious that he would just make lists upon lists of his sins. And so he would come on Sundays, and, and my friend Tim Smith and I would be there, and he would come, and, and he'd bring his lists of sins. And we just kept telling him, Eugene, you're, you know, he was going inward. And if you do that, and if I do that, well, first of all, some of us need to do more of that. Okay, that's number one. You know, the Lord's Prayer says, forgive me my sins just as I forgive others their sins. And way too many of us, and I am guilty of this equally at times, is we just go through a 24-hour period and, and, and don't confess sin. But the other extreme is you look at your sins too much, and you look inward and inward, and you, and you beat yourself up. And as Eugene was doing, we tell him, you know, you need to tear that list up and look at Jesus instead of your sins. Well, Luther didn't know this yet, and so like Eugene, he just tried to do more penance. Well, in 1508... 
And, and, and like Eugene, he became an irritant to his spiritual mentors, okay? Because at one Sunday, dealing with Eugene's sins was one thing. Every Sunday, you, you just, you're like, go away. You, you're not listening. You got to do this. And so Luther had a spiritual mentor that was, uh, that he bothered with his sins. And he finally told him, go study the Bible. You need to become a Bible professor. That's what you need to do. You need to become a Bible professor. And you need to get your focus on the Bible, which was ironic advice in the Dark Ages, ironic advice uh, from a Roman Catholic. But remember, he was in a monastery. He was among those who were more serious than the average Roman Catholic, the average person in the Middle Ages. And the man gave him the right advice. What the man didn't realize was what he was unleashing. Because anytime you advise someone who's struggling to get into the Bible, they're going to see Jesus. And when they see Jesus, if they repent and believe, they will be converted. And when they're converted, they become a new creation. And when we become a new creation, it remains the same. And so right here is a pivotal point in the Reformation that led to Reformation Day on October 31st in 1517. But we're not there yet. So here's what he tells him. It, it just begins to weigh heavily on his mind. And in 1508, he begins teaching theology at the University of Wittenberg. But the forgiveness of sin and a clear conscience were uppermost in his mind. Because here's what happens. As you, again, it's the same thing as performing Mass. As you as a sinner and me as a sinner separated from God encounter God's Word, you're going to see His holiness and you're going to see your sinfulness and it's going to create an even greater tension. He commented later, if one were to confess his sins in a timely manner, he would have to carry a confessor in his pocket. And that's really true. And that's the way we ought to view our sins, constantly confessing those. But, you know, again, that was something you did. You had to go to someone. And so he would tie, he, he would tie, he, he would tie, uh, he would spend six hours confessing sins. So he would tie up a priest in the uh, in the, uh, in the what do you call it, the, the what? Yeah, the confessional. He'd tie up a priest for six hours. Okay, well then he would be off his schedule for doing all the other godly things that he was supposed to do to be saved, so then he'd have to confess. It's, it's vicious. It's vicious. And many people today live in that same cycle. Um, and so he urge, his mentor urges him to trust God and study the Bible. But Luther found no comfort in the teachings and rituals of the Roman Catholic Church. Here's what he says. Conscience would never give me assurance. But I was always doubting and said, you did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough. You left that, that out of your confession. And that's exactly what happens. When religion is spelled do, there's two problems with that. Number one is you never know if you've done enough. And that's what his conscience was saying. His conscience was telling him, look, you didn't do that right. You didn't, you didn't feel sorry enough when you did it. And you left that out. And of course, you never can do enough. The second problem is, you, you, well, the second problem is you never can do enough. You don't know when you've done enough because you never can do enough to be as good as God. Amen? So this was his struggle. Luther later remarked, he, 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 his lack of assurance wasn't due to a lack of sincerity. You can be sincerely wrong and still be unsaved. He later remarked, I was drunk, nay submerged in the doctrines of the Pope that I could have happily killed or cooperated with anyone who killed whoever took but a syllable of obedience away from the Pope. Well, that's all about to change because number four, ultimately what happens is Luther says, what must I do to be saved? Well, it's not working here. Maybe I need to go to the spiritual hot spot. And of course, for the Roman Catholic Church, that would be where? Rome. And so he says, I'll travel to Rome and worship more relics. I'll travel to Rome and I'll worship more relics. So you've got to understand, what must I do to be saved? Well, it ain't working here in Germany, so I'll go to where it all started, at least in the terms of the Roman Catholic Church. I'll go to Rome. 
And so they send him off, probably to get rid of him, okay? Probably because, hey, I've got enough things to do today. I don't need to hear Martin sin for six hours. So let's send him to Rome on church business. And, of course, he was thrilled with this. Now, when I say worship more relics, what's a relic? Well, relics are pieces of history, uh, supposedly parts of church history, parts of the life of Jesus or saints who were very holy that were kept and if you looked at these relics, if you came and kissed them, or if you looked upon them, and especially if you gave a donation when you did so, you would get more forgiveness. It would help you answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Now, where Luther lived, the guy in charge, the, the, the guy in tr- politically who was in charge, was a guy by the name of Frederick the Wise, who wasn't really that wise, because he had a collection of relics that were supposedly uh, included 19,000 holy bones, bones of uh, either, you know, uh, saints, apostles, you know, who knows, and 5,000 other items that supposedly provided the basis for granting forgiveness that could reduce your stay in purgatory by over 1.9 million years. So this guy, you know, he was Fred, Frederick was wise though in this respect. If this is how you get to heaven, and if the more relics you look at, and 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 in my case, the more relics I own, the better off I have. So he makes a collection where he's got 1.9 million years off of purgatory, which sounds like a lot, except when you measure it against what eternity okay that's not going to help and what happens is on november 1st which was all saints day now you got to remember the days here on november 1st these relics would be brought out on all saints day where you remembered all these past past saints and so you get to see their hair and their bones and and pieces of the uh in fact it was so ridiculous uh there was pieces of straw from the manger where Christ was laid, there were strands of the swaddling coat clothes from Christ's manger. Uh, some relics um, were chunks of gold brought by one of the three wise men, a strand from the beard of Jesus, a twig from the burning bush of Moses, bread served at the Lord's Supper. Just think, if this my bread, if this is holy, just think if you got to look upon the bread that Jesus had handled and said, this is my body, which would create quite a problem because he had a body, and then he said, this is my body, but let's not go there because that would make sense. And then seven shreds from a veil that that was sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So what would happen is these relics would, all over uh, the Holy Roman Empire, wherever Roman Catholicism had its influence, they would bring out these relics, and on All Saints Day, you would go and you would look at them, kiss them, touch them, uh, crawl on your knees to them, and then pay your money, and you would get all sorts of years off of purgatory, not only for you, but for your loved ones who were already suffering there. Because nobody was going to heaven directly. So, by the end of the Middle Ages, so many churches, the end of the Dark Ages, claimed to possess a piece of the true cross that John Calvin famously said that you could take all these bits of the, the pieces of Jesus' cross and fill a whole ship with them. Okay. In fact, some pieces were so big that in Rome they would form a crucifix out of the chip. You know, it's okay. You get the idea. So here's the idea. Hey, I'm going to go on a special trip to the most holy place on earth, where the most spiritual people on the planet live, and that'll help me answer the question: What must I do to be saved? Now, for Christians, sometimes we act this way about what city? Jerusalem. Haven't you ever heard these holy trips? Go and walk. Where you, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you know, and I always laugh at those. Now, first of all, if you want to send me to Jerusalem, I will gladly go, okay? And that's a great bucket list item that I would gladly go. But it's not to get closer to Jesus. Because I can't get any closer to Jesus than what he is right now. He dwells in me. And walking in where he walked in Jerusalem geographically is not going to get me. Now, it'll teach me a lot of things, and I may grow uh, better in my Bible study because I learn these facts. It's all a great thing to do. And I would love to do it, but not for this reason. So Christians can be this way too. Also, Muslims can be this way. In fact, they not only can be this way, they must be this way in order to get to heaven. They must go on their pilgrimages to uh, Mecca 
in order to be saved. So this isn't just a, a Roman Catholic thing. It's for any religion that says, that spells salvation as do. So off he goes. 1510 to 1511, he's sent to Rome on business. He becomes an eyewitness, though, not to holiness, but hypocrisy and the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. Instead of seeing holiness, he sees corruption. Instead of seeing humble, monastic living like he was used to, he sees the luxury, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, who were the priests and the bishops and the popes of Rome. He sees numerous relics, and they are sold for forgiveness, and the promise of forgiveness is there, but no one is living like they are forgiven. In fact, he met one lady who was said to live only on the bread from the, from the Mass. Okay, so this is my body, and he, she would live off of that after the service. The only problem was she didn't want to talk spiritual things with Luther. Okay, so this guy's devastated. Here's a serious man trying to answer a question. What must I do to be saved? He's on the most holy place on the planet, where the most holy people are supposed to live, and no one cares about, no one's helping him answer the question. They don't even see, be, seem to be concerned about the question. And though they seem to claim to know the answer to the question, their life is a contradiction. You see, Rome was not spiritual enough to answer this question. So number five, what must I do to be saved? When all else fails, become a Bible scholar. So he's still answering this question. He comes back, but he makes a right move, and he decides to become a Bible scholar, which doesn't answer that question, but it does get him into the book, a book that he had never even seen for 20 years of his life. So in 1511 to 1512, he returns to Wittenberg, and he receives a, a Ph.D., a doctor of theology, and he becomes a professor of the Bible. And so, among the things that he was given, he was given a woolen beret, uh, beret to indicate that he was a professor and a doctor of theology. He was given a silver ring. He was given two Bibles. He was a commissioned to be a sworn doctor of the Holy Scripture. And he was given an office in the tower at Wittenberg where he would eventually answer his question, what must I do to be saved? Now, here's what's important about this time in his life. While being a Bible scholar or a Bible student won't save you, it does get you into the book that answers the question from God's perspective. And he developed three convictions that laid a foundation for him getting to zero. So let me give you what those are. First of all, at this point in his life, he begins to surrender to the Bible as the ultimate standard of truth. Now, in Roman Catholicism, the ultimate standard... It's not just the Bible, but it's also the Pope. But why would he not be satisfied with that? Where did he just come back from? Rome. And what had he seen there? Unholiness. Ungodliness. A lower level of spiritual life than what he himself was experiencing. And he himself was a guilt-ridden monk in search of salvation. And so he turns and he surrenders himself. Instead of studying the Bible like this with himself as the authority, he places the scriptures over his life and he surrenders himself to the authority of the Bible. And before we are too smug as we look at the life of Martin Luther, we need to ask ourselves, how do I study the Bible? Do I study it like this, where I'm the authority over this? Or do I literally, and I would challenge you to do this, if you need help in this area, is to take your Bible, place it over your head, and say, Lord, I surrender to you as my ultimate authority, and your word is my ultimate authority. Now I'm ready to hear from it. Upakuo. Surrendering yourself, I will obey before I hear. I will obey before I open. And so this is what he's doing. And so when you surrender to the Bible as the ultimate authority, the next conviction you, you should develop is study the Bible in the original languages in order to know what it says. Now, not everybody can do that, but those who are committed to teaching the Bible to others, especially as pastors and as missionaries, should study in the original languages in order to know what it says. And this was something that was new. This hadn't happened before. Everybody studying in Latin. Well, God didn't reveal the scriptures in Latin, revealed it in Greek and Hebrew. So he begins to study the original languages. There's much more I could tell you about the significance of that. But here's what he did. Because you're like, okay, I'm in deep trouble if the key is studying the original languages, because I don't know those. That's all right. His third conviction was this, start teaching in the language of the common man. So as a professor, as a pastor, as a 
priest. He was studying in the original language, but the, the goal was to now not speak in Latin anymore, like at Mass, but to speak in German. Because after all, I'm talking into what? Germans, not Latins. Just like in Mongolia, you're talking to Mongolians, not Americans. So you speak in Mongolian, right? So we expect all of our missionaries to speak in the language of the common man of wherever they go, right? That's, and that's not something we assume. It's something we follow up on. Because too many missionaries don't learn the language. But because Luther had these convictions that the Bible is the final authority, therefore I need to know what it says as a professor, as a priest, in the original language. But once I learn what it says, I'm going to speak in the common language. And as we'll see next week, I'm not only going to uh, reserve the Bible for those who know Greek and Hebrew, but I'm also going to translate the Bible for the first time into the language of the common man. But you have to come back next week for that. So, he's still asking the question, what must I do to be saved? And he finally finds the answer. And where does he find the answer? It's where you found the answer. It's where your unsaved friends will find the answer. It's in the Bible, and it's in the Gospel. And so he begins to study. And he learns that faith alone in Christ alone for salvation is the only biblical answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? The answer is nothing. You can't do enough. Because religion is spelled do, but a relationship with Christ is spelled how? Done. It's done. It's not what you do. But to get to that, Luther had to study the Word of God. He had to reflect on the Word of God. And so he begins to teach through the Psalms for two years. Then, and he teaches through and studies the book of Romans. Then he goes on to Galatians and Hebrews. Well, what all these have in common is they exalt Christ, and they exalt the message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But it was Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17, that led Luther to his conversion. And here's what it says. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, I can develop this more, and we may talk about more next week. But the bottom line was, Luther had on works salvation, he had on religious glasses and when he would read the righteousness of God he would think God's righteous I'm not I'm in trouble this brought no hope to him but he kept reading it and he kept reading it and finally by God's grace God revealed to him what was really being said that there was yes God's righteous you're not but the beauty of the gospel is you get God's righteousness as a gift and by faith, that you receive by faith. So God's righteousness, is, yes, it's something to fear, but it's something to rejoice in. It's something to receive by faith. And finally, reading this verse, God revealed to Martin Luther the answer to the question he'd been asking for so many years, the question of information, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was something that he had never been taught to hear. Nothing. Nothing. Faith alone in Christ and righteous and forgiven. And from that time on, Luther's theology was based on the priesthood of believers and the five solas of the Reformation. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, glory alone. Now, we'll get into this a little more next week. But here's what I want you to see. See, Suddenly he realized, I don't need to go through anyone or do anything to get to God. I can go right to him. I'm not a priest because I'm a Roman Catholic or because I do spiritual things. I'm a priest because Jesus is my mediator. And now I can come to God on my own. Ultimately, I want you to see, you want to learn from this. It was his own personal study of the Bible and an obedient faith to what he learned there that led to trust in Christ alone. Here's what Luther says in his own words. The Reformation happened because the Pope tried to hinder me from fulfilling my vocation of teaching the Scriptures. So you start teaching them. And he's saying, hey, wait a minute. Here's what the Bible says, and here's what we're doing. We need to reform. We need to make changes. And they said, stop. Wait a minute. You made me a, a teacher of the Bible. 
And like any true believer, Luther couldn't keep such good news to himself. He had to share it with others. And that's what started on October 31st, 1517. He nailed to the wall of the church, which was the blog post of those days, he nailed 95 points that he said, look, we need to readdress these things. And that's what started. We'll get there next week. Today, what I want you to see is Halloween is not all darkness and demons. It's a day to remember that getting to zero is within his reach. But he uses those who are truly born again and committed to sharing God's word with all people. The Reformation didn't take place until Luther was born again. Because when you're born again, you get a new nature, you're a new creature, and you have a new love for God and for people, and you want to get the two together. The most dangerous threat in all of history is a common man with a common Bible committed to an uncommon cause, the Great Commission. And here's what Luther says. What I began as a doctor, I must truly confess to the end of my life. I cannot keep silent. I cannot cease to teach. And that is what's launched Reformation Day. So next week, we'll find out how that happened. Today, let's be thankful that someone shared the gospel with you. That the light was shown into your darkness. That God in His grace revealed the glories of Christ to you through a study or the preaching of the scriptures. And you too have a Reformation Day. And that can be a happy day indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the life of Martin Luther. It always gets me buzzed up to uh, study this man's life, to put myself in his sandals, his shoes, his, his monk uh, uh, habit, and think, wow, surrounded by such darkness, and yet, God, you intervened, and you showed him the truth of the gospel and the word of God. Lord, it changed everything. It changed history. It changed our lives. We need to be thankful. And like Martin Luther, we need to be joyful in getting that good news to more people, not only here in Kansas City, but around the world. So give us that joy, Lord, and let us repent and embrace the righteousness of God as a free gift in Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want to hear more about Luther's uh, conversion in his own words, I have an insert there for you that you can pick up. It's, it's uh, very interesting. 